It was just about a, a decade ago that an article appeared in the Christian Chronicle highlighting a Gallup poll that indicated that members of Churches of Christ were more likely than adherents of any other religious group to attend a weekly worship service. According to the poll, 68% had attended a worship service on a weekly basis. That's those who were there each and every week. The other organizations or religious groups with high numbers, Pentecostals, Mormons, Southern Baptists, all of those were over 60%. More liturgical groups were much lower, Roman Catholics, uh, Lutherans, Episcopalians. A more recent survey from the Pew Forum in 2014 indicates that for all of those religious groups, the numbers have fallen slightly across the board, but the percentages, relatively speaking, hold true. I wonder if that's not a bit of a double-edged sword when we think about it. On the one hand, you hear members of Churches of Christ are more likely than anyone else to be in a weekly worship service. That's a good thing. And you know what? I want to make it clear. I'm glad that you're here today. Whether you're a member, whether you're a visitor, we're thrilled that you're here and that you're worshiping with us. And I want to encourage you to be here as often as you can. I'm glad that you've made it a point, made it a priority to be here with us today. And I I hope the time we spend here together is beneficial for all of us and that uh, God is honored and that we leave here having been built up. But on the other hand, I wonder if that attendance doesn't reveal something a little bit darker. Historically, we have emphasized attendance in the assembly to the point that it's as if you will be here or you'll be in hell. Neglect of the assembly has been treated so seriously that it's about the only thing that some congregations will exercise church discipline over. And then on the other hand, somebody can be regarded as a faithful Christian if they're in attendance every time the doors are open, even if the rest of their life is a complete and utter utter wreck out of step with what God would have them to do. The corporate worship of the church, the things that we do when we gather together as God's people, is important. It's immensely important. It's so important that we're going to spend the next several weeks thinking about those things, talking about them, uh, what we do and why we do what we do. But that has to be rooted in the why we come here in the first place. And if we boil it all down to our bodily presence and checking off a few boxes of things that we have to do, well, we sang some songs and we ate the Lord's Supper and we gave of our means, etc., then we're missing the point. I'd begin by pointing out that a comprehensive study of the words translated for worship in the New Testament indicate that it's not confined to something we do here in this building. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 comes to mind here. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present, that's a technical term for presenting a sacrifice, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, rational, spiritual, logical, the highest part of us, worship 
or service. You see, in the Old Testament, we have a sacred space in the temple. We have priests, we have sacrifices, we have sacred time in terms of particular feasts or festivals to participate in. And that was typical of ancient pagan religions too. But in contrast to that, the New Testament teaches us we're a priestly people. Our bodies are temples. The Spirit of God doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. He lives within us. And each and every day, our lives are to be offered up in sacrifice to God. There's no sense of sacred space or time in the New Testament the way there is in the Old Testament or in paganism because every day has been set apart, devoted to service to God. On the other hand, that has made some people say that, well, if if every day is to be offered to God like that, then there must not be anything too important about us coming here together. It must be mostly for our own benefit, to build each other up. Well, it's true that one of the things that we do when we gather here is encourage one another. But we're also approaching God. I want you to listen to what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 19, and this is in the context of one particular verse that we often talk about not forsaking the assembling, and we just rip this out of context, and we fail to appreciate how much more is being said here. Hebrews 10, verse 19, the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Part of our purpose here is to build one another up, but we're also drawing near to God in a special way here. The assembly isn't just where God's people gather together. It's where God meets his people. And so with that in mind, We do want to focus in particular on what we do collectively when we worship together as God's people. And that raises a question. What is worship? That's an important question to ask because there are a lot of misconceptions floating around about it, even among very religious people. And we might begin by talking about some of those misconceptions and understanding what worship is not. So, first of all, there's the external or the mechanical interpretation of worship. That is where we think of it just like some exercises, some rites, some ceremonies that we go through. We think of it almost as a checklist of duties or obligations that we have to perform in order to sort of build up our heavenly credit rating and be right with God. And it's as if they have a value just from going through the motions of the acts. I know it hasn't been taught this way explicitly, at least not by anyone I know of, but sometimes 
in all of our teaching on the five acts of worship, we unwittingly seem to advocate this sort of idea. Uh, Listen, just for example, this is from a lecture by John Bannister at the 1951 Abilene Christian College Lectures. He's talking about the worship of the church, and that's the title. The essential thing is that when we worship, the essential thing is that when we worship, we engage in all these scriptural acts. To have less than these required five is to render worship vain. To have more than these is to corrupt the worship. Should God's people do the things that he requires them to do? Yeah, absolutely they should. And is there a value sometimes in just actually going through the acts, even if maybe our hearts aren't quite in them that day? I think so. You ever wake up on Sunday morning and don't feel like coming to church? Be honest, it's okay. (laughs) Occasionally I'll wake up and I don't feel like preaching today but I can't get out of it. (laughs) But sometimes we wake up and we just don't feel like it, and yet we go ahead and we do it because we know we we should. And then what do you find often? You get here, and just from actually being here and, and singing and praying, you realize you do feel better. So there is value in just going through those acts, even if your heart's not always exactly what it should be. But we're asking here about the underlying motivation, Are we doing that just to go through the motions? Or is our worship based on our response of thanksgiving to a gracious and loving God? The Old Testament prophets taught over and over and over again in critiquing Israel's worship that the right externals weren't enough. Their hearts had to be right. We had a whole sermon about that last week. And the point is, it's no different in the New Testament. God wants our externals, to flow from hearts that are right with him. And in fact, that might even be more true in the New Testament with the abolishment of temple worship. God expects hearts to be right. It's not just mechanics. It's not just externals. That's not enough. The second misunderstanding, we might call this the individualistic interpretation of worship. That is where we just view it as our own private devotions. The focus here is on on meditation, on introspection. And so I'm worshiping and you're worshiping and we're all individually worshiping God. We just happen to all be here in the same place. It's why you'll you'll hear some people say things like they can worship just as well out at the lake as they can here. And, you know, if it is all about just praying or meditating or focusing on God, it's true. We can do those things other places, and we might even be able to do them better other places than we can here. The problem is this ignores some things that can only be done here in the assembly. Remember that passage we read from Hebrews chapter 10 a few moments ago? where the writer talks about part of our purpose in gathering together is to stir up love and good works in one another, to encourage one another. You can't do that in private meditation. The Lord's Supper isn't just an individual meal that we're eating. It's not like eating here by ourselves in a crowded cafeteria. It's a community meal. It's a family meal. The eating together is important as the eating itself. 
That's why it's called communion. Not merely communion with the Lord, it's communion with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like a a Thanksgiving or a Christmas meal in the sense of, yeah, there's an individual part of that. You're looking forward to eating mom's dressing or all the pies or whatever, but isn't the eating with your family what's really important about that? Both of those aspects are critical. When we come here together, we're confessing, we're professing that we are the church. The word church means assembly. We're showing that we're God's gathered people. It's only here that we can express that mutual care and concern and love for one another that God commands us to have. The emphasis when we gather together isn't on ourselves. It's on others. Another misconception people have is the emotional uplift interpretation of worship. That is, people come for what they can get out of it. They uh, equate worship of God with some sort of emotionally satisfying experience. We talked about this in our bulletin article this morning. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. But at any rate, even very religious people sometimes equate praise for God with some sort of emotionally ecstatic experience. You see, the problem here is if we make worship useful, if we make it all about what we get out of it, well, then we're not really worshiping God. We're worshiping ourselves. And then when we leave here, we say, well, I just didn't get anything out of worship today. So we make it all about us. Beyond that, when we think about others, building one another's up, Scripture teaches us that that comes through instruction It comes through teaching. It comes through symbolic acts like reenacting the death of Christ in the Lord's Supper. It comes through prayers that are coherent. It comes through the the preaching and teaching that we're doing here. It's why Paul, when he was in Corinth, said nobody should speak in a tongue without an interpreter because in church I'd rather speak five words with my mind, that's what's important, than to speak endlessly in a tongue. Worship isn't about emotional or aesthetic satisfaction it's about instruction about being built up in the faith similar to this misunderstanding is the entertainment misconception about worship that is we start to treat those who are leading in the worship service almost as if they're like performers and everyone out there is the audience but we're all participants together in this Worship isn't a time for anyone to show off, whether it's a a preacher or a song leader or someone showing their eloquence in a prayer. It's a time not about glorifying self, but about glorifying God and serving others. And each and every one of us has to participate in that. No one's to be passive in that. There are probably more misunderstandings we could talk about here. And like all misunderstandings, each one of these has some element of truth in them. We need to be present. We need to do the things that God requires us to do. We should be meditative, contemplative, and focused. We will receive spiritual blessings from our worship, and that might even include some some sort of emotionally satisfying experience. And everyone who's involved here in leading the service, needs to do the best of their ability, whether it's the song leader or those offering up prayers. You wouldn't think very much of me if I got up here and hadn't prepared anything at all to say. And, of course, I wouldn't be helping to build you up then. 
and I wouldn't be offering my best to God. But the fuller truth is that the assembly should be corporate. All of us should be involved. It should be instructive. It should be spiritual. And it should point to a greater consciousness and awareness of God. We're not to point to ourselves. We're to build one another up. And we're ultimately to point all of us to God. I think we pretty clearly established what worship is not. In the few minutes we have left, let's talk about what worship is. That's the question. What is worship? And I want us to go to a passage in Isaiah chapter 6. This is a place you might not ever have thought to go when talking about worship, but I think this is a great case study for us here. This is Isaiah's recounting his call to be a prophet. And here, what I submit to you is we find the essence of real worship. Isaiah 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The first emphasis in this passage is on God, high and lifted up. And I want you to think about those words. I want you to let that image of God high and lifted up take hold of you until we can get a glimpse of God in his majesty and his splendor and his glory and his power. That's the beginning of worship. Isaiah pictures God here in the Holy of Holies in the temple with two seraphim above him. And that scene might sound familiar because we have a very similar picture in Revelation chapter 4. John writes there about the heavenly throne room. And there's the thrones of the 24 elders all around God. And they bow down before him and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. And in that same scene, John describes the living creatures who uh, bow down to God there, are hovering around the throne actually, and day and night they're constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So whether it's Isaiah or whether it's John, the idea of God high and lifted up, holy, transcendent, resplendent beyond anything that we can possibly imagine or conceive. That's the beginning of worship. We need to try to catch a glimpse of that God. But that's only the beginning. We've looked at God, and that should cause us to look inward at ourselves. Isaiah 6, verse 5. I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. This is the antidote for our pride. We as human beings, we're proud of our inventions. We're proud of our buildings. We're proud of our educations. We're proud of our skills. We're proud of our income. On and on and on we could go. We're just proud. But when we see God as he really is, high and lifted up, we realize that we're really not the center of the universe. When we see him as he really is, we see ourselves as we really are in comparison. Weak, pitiful, sinful, undone as Isaiah was. You notice here that Isaiah didn't realize he was unclean until he saw God high and lifted up. It's only after he caught that vision of God that he realized, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Do we need to have our pride punctured? Here in this 21st century where we live in the most powerful nation on earth, we are the wealthiest people who've ever lived on this earth. Whoever you are out there today, whether you're rich or poor by American standards, you're in the top 1% of all the people who've ever lived on this world. When we're just so proud of everything about us, do we need to humble ourselves? Yes, absolutely we do. And hopefully we feel this need when we get a conception of the greatness of God, when we realize how magnificent he is and how pitiful we are in comparison. Then comes the next stage. Verse number six, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Our greatest need is to be cleansed, to be purified, to be cleansed from all of the sin that drags us down, the greed, the hate, the selfishness, the lust, any and all of the evils that so easily beset us to have those things cleansed. But the only way that can happen is to bow ourselves down before God and his majesty and allow him to cleanse us. That's why Jesus came into this world. That's why he died for us, so that we might be cleansed and purified from the guilt of sin. It all begins when a person becomes a Christian. And the way that you do that, you respond to what God's done in Christ is so clearly laid out in Scripture. Through faith, putting your trust in Christ, through repentance, turning to God. Confessing all of that in the act of baptism where your sins are washed away, where you're cleansed, and where you're born again to begin living that new life as part of God's people. Well, Isaiah pictures that very thing here figuratively, symbolically, as a burning coal touched to his lips, purifying his uncleanness. Of course, for those of us who are Christians, we continue to stumble and we continue to need to be cleansed all, away, all along the way. And fortunately, we have that too in Christ. 
As John writes, 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In hours of worship like this, we again see our Lord high and lifted up. We realize our own weakness, our own uncleanness in comparison. We come confessing. We're cleansed. We're purified all over again. But as important and as wonderful as being cleansed is, it's still not the end of worship. Back to Isaiah 6, verse number 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And Isaiah is then sent out with his prophetic commission. Cleon Lyles used to tell the story about an elderly Christian woman who had been to worship services and after she was leaving, uh, someone asked her on the way out, is the sermon done? And of course, meaning by that, is the sermon finished? And this profoundly wise, mature Christian lady responded, the sermon has been delivered, but it's yet to be done. You see, when we walk out those doors this morning, we don't just drift aimlessly back into the world. We go for a purpose. We're sent. And that purpose is to hopefully help the rest of the world catch that same vision of a God, high and holy, lifted up. And in comparison, our own weakness and our own sinfulness, our own uncleanness, our own imperfection. And to help them realize that if they've never come to Christ, they're lost. And they need to be cleansed and purified. That's our purpose. We're sent on that mission. It's a wonderful thing that we're all here today. And I'm so thankful that we've all gathered here and we've had this opportunity to sing songs of praise to God, to approach his throne in, with boldness, receive grace and mercy from him, to eat of the Lord's Supper that reminds us of the death of Jesus for our sins and to, to study his word together. But we can go through these things for a lifetime, week by week by week, month after month, year after year after year, and not really understand what worship is. We don't worship God because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't. And we don't worship God out of a sense of reciprocity because if we'll do this for him, maybe he'll do something good for us. We worship God because he's God and because he loves us and we love him in return. If God blesses us, that's fantastic. But if for some reason he chooses not to in some way, well, it is still good and he's still worthy of worship. I hope that we walk away from here today with a better understanding of what worship is. But I want to ask you this morning, have you seen the majesty of God? Have you realized your own imperfection in comparison? Do you need to come confessing? Do you need to be cleansed and purified? 
if you do. It's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.